traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. From time to time, churches and other groups hire me as a tent theologian to act as a sort of consultant, helping them think Christianly about whatever it is they're going through. St. Luke's Church in London hired me a few months ago to go through the Sermon on the Mount with them, and I recorded a series of conversations with the Vicar John and with other guests who came and joined our conversation from time to time. They were kind enough to allow these recordings to be released on the podcast. I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as we enjoyed making them. Episode with my friend Dr. Stephen Backhouse as we go journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Stephen, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, sitting in my garden reading and writing today, which has been a fun way to do it. There's a robin's nest outside my window, and I've oh. there's three baby robins that I can see. I've never seen a baby robin before until yesterday, and there's three little heads popping up. So. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, that's really nice. Well, we are journeying through uh, the Sermon on the Mount this week. And uh, as we have been for the last couple of weeks, and we are in the middle of Jesus' case studies, as it were, from when he says, I've come to uh, not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it, to bring it to completion in himself. And we had our first case study in anger. Uh, We looked at that last week and uh, murder. Uh, And this week we are looking at lust. Yeah. So. Why don't you read for us, Stephen, from um, David Bentley Hart. All right, here we are. So this is Matthew 5, 27 to 32, I think we said. Mm -hmm. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Whereas I tell you that everyone looking at a married woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to falter, remove it and fling it away from you. For it is expedient for you that one of your members should perish rather than that your whole body should be thrown into the veil of Hinnom. And if your right hand causes you to falter, cut it off and fling it away from you. For it is expedient for you that one of your members should perish rather than that your whole body should be depart into the veil of Hinnom. Moreover, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, he must provide her with a writ of separation. Whereas I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in cases of, <laughs> David Bentley Hart says, whorishness. Yeah, always. Uh, thanks, David. Thanks for. <laughs> yeah, except in cases of, uh, the word is porneia, and we'll talk about that, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever weds a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. All right. That surprised me. I wasn't expecting to see the word whorishness. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's, a, that's the best word for that. So what do you want to talk about? Uh, this kind of stuff must be a real bane of the uh, Church of England vicar's repertoire, right? I know we're always, you know, always really excited when passages like this show up, and we're like, okay, who's going to? Yeah. So I, um, I did the courageous thing and delegated it to my associate vicar. <laughs> who's that? A guy called Colin. Okay, uh, who's my associate? And I met Colin. Yeah, he did say very, very much tongue in cheek. Thanks for this one, John, on Sunday. 
like when the rotor comes out and you know that John's in charge of the rotor, John's like, I'm handing this one to you. Um, but I think that's interesting, right? Because it speaks of, you know, how immediately sensitive a subject it is. Immediately, you know, regardless of how you even start, which angle you approach it from, immediately it speaks to the sensitivity and the challenge that it's this kind of it's seen as a hospital pass from um, from anybody that that has it on their uh, on on the rotor to cover. Whereas something like anger that's just gone before and, and murder, even yeah. uh, and indeed uh, we get into telling the truth and oaths later. You know, those things are like, yeah, okay, we'll tackle that one. That's fine, no problem. And Jesus treats the whole thing as, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you know, there is no kind of value judgment either way on this. This is, this is, these are evenly handed things that he wants to talk about as to how it is we live out. Right. As, well, as um, Scott McKnight talks about this kind of Jesus creed, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind and strength and, and to love your neighbor. This is how, this is what it looks like to live it out. And so Jesus is very even handedly talking about half a dozen things of which lust is one. But yeah, this yeah. is the one that we're like, oh, gosh, I can't believe I've got that one, which shows you how much of a kind of sensitive subject it is. Um, I don't think it's I mean, I don't think there's too many people that would say lust is it. They're worried about lust being thought of as a bad thing. I think it's more the cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Yeah which people like that and that can't be true so what is going on that can't be literally true and then there's that that veil of hinnom or gehenna or hell language gets wrapped up in this as well and you're like yeah. oh my goodness what's going on yeah. and divorced women if you marry a divorced person you've committed adultery it's kind of like it just seems to be completely fraught with pastoral issues well true and and, uh, and you know that as you speak into that yeah you've got 20 minutes 40 minutes if, if you're in certain churches to try and tackle some of this in a partially sensitive way. Well, um, let's do it. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll do it. Let's talk through some of the contextual stuff. So, you know, yeah. let's talk through what was understood. Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, that's in the one of the, the Ten Commandments. So, he, I mean, this is, you can tell, this isn't a time where he's saying adultery is, he's not saying it's fine. He's saying it's even more easy to commit than you thought. So he's he's making it even more kind of important. So it's not like he's saying, "Oh, adultery is not a problem." Yeah, you can ignore that. Um, there that's, are that's his point. That's his strategy all the way through, isn't it? To yeah. say, "Listen, right. you can you can obey the fundamental law. That you know, you can you can live a life where you're not going to murder. But hang on a minute, what's at the heart of that? Or you can live a life where you're not going to commit adultery. Doesn't mean you're scot free. And I think he's speaking into that legalistic, like, well, I've ticked the box of I've not committed adultery." And he's trying to, it seems to me, to get into the heart of actually what's behind that rule yeah. in the first place. And it's part of this theme that Jesus has of or personalizing stuff that people might have been tempted to think was kind of external to them. So I have to, you always have to be sensitive talking about this in the, in the year 2020, because we have 2000 years of individualizing stuff. And so we've, we've over individualized a lot of Jesus's teaching, I think. We've made it really private. And we think there's no public kind of aspect to it quite often. Yeah, I'm always hesitant about this. But the reason why we have privatized Christianity to such an extent is because it was originally there in the text. And it's like we've taken a thing and just gone with it. We've yeah, taken yeah. the ball and run with it. Because there is a personalized element for sure. And it's very similar to like when Jesus talks about 
elsewhere when he's going to talk about uh, declaring things pure. Uh, and he says, look, all foods, it's not what goes into you that makes you impure. It's what comes out, right? Yeah. It's your, your heart. And this is a similar kind of thing. He's saying, look, it's not about like your public, if you check the boxes of, of appearing to be faithfully married or if, you've, if you're taking care of your spouse, that's not the same as, as living a life free of adultery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's because it's it's not just the outer appearances; it's also what's happening in your heart. Yeah. So he's radicalizing that. He's like making you. It's a bit like with the murder. He's like, it doesn't really matter. The 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 on paper, the ins and outs of what it is to take a life. If you even dismiss somebody in your heart, it's as if you murdered them. Yeah. So yeah. he's doing something that with here. I. It is worth really quickly pointing out, and a lot of people will point this out. That a lot of cultures, including, let's not be racist here, including white evangelical Christianized cultures all over the place, when it comes to this kind of stuff, how often we try and police the women. Mm -hmm. So, like, we control women's clothing or appearance or behavior, and we say you shouldn't incite women, you shouldn't incite men to lust. The problem is you are inciting men to lust. So you need to do something about it. Notice that Jesus does not do that. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so radical because even, yeah. even now in our culture, we'll talk about, it's obviously not appropriate to say it, um, but where people will say, you know, a woman experiences sexual assault. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, and they'll say, oh, but she was dressed a certain way yeah. or she was acting a immediately place. It's like, as if, as if, usually yeah. the man in that case is unable to do anything about that oh it's just you know yeah, uh, yeah. And, and we have we have uh, our christian culture has a lot of toxic ideas that we perpetuate that a lot i went to yeah. schools where the women had a very i went to a christian school in canada and the women had a dress code about skirt lengths and stuff but the men didn't and, and that kind of thing and 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 you know it's not that far distant from some of these islamic cultures we hear about where the women yeah. are always forced to cover up and the men don't seem to have nothing really seems to matter to them yeah and it's you know it's always the same thing it's kind of a tale as old as time really is that the women get policed yeah and jesus doesn't do that he doesn't he doesn't say women stop acting in ways that make men lust he, he's very it's very gender specific here he's like or, or sex specific he's like when a man looks at a woman lustfully you know he's he's really kind of telling men to practice self-control yeah are yeah. their own hearts yeah yeah it's part of that important it's not about policing morality or the appearance of morality it's about guarding your own heart yeah and again he he's exactly he's, he's talking again about what's inside because that's yeah. what, it's not about externals it's not about dressing a particular way so as to avoid temptation or to stop you know because actually he recognizes that the problem is the human heart. It's not that the problem is not the externals. Yeah. So, yes. And now let's talk about the next verse. Right. About yeah. the stuff of your right eye. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk oh, about that. Because he is talking about the heart. Uh, you're right. He's not talking about the externals, like the bare minimum, ex like just going through the motions of the externals. I mean, here's the headline. We're all connected. There is no such thing as a private sin. So, you are always, no matter what you do, you, you're always going to affect yourself and your relationships with others. So even if you are privately in your, heart, in your head lusting after somebody, 
you are still going to it's going to affect your relationships with that person it's going to affect yeah. relationships with your actual spouse it's going to affect your the, your own sense of being so anything we do even if it's like hidden in our own minds it still has a social effect right so there is no such thing as a private sin yeah yeah there's personal sins but they're not private they every sin has some social relational ramifications in yeah, some okay. way, right so remember what we talked about with the with the idea that the jesus is often talking about being of some use so the whole thing about the veil of gehenna is that it was the plate the gehenna was the, f the the place of fire where you would yeah. burn the rubbish yeah yeah we looked at that last week yeah yeah and it, it shows up here in a big way and so again it's the exact same theme it's like are you like salt that's lost its saltiness are you like a branch that isn't bearing fruit are you like a candle that's being put underneath a basket or are you like a body that's not functioning correctly like because he's basically saying like remember the veil of gehenna is all about being a place of utter worthlessness so he says it's better for you to have lost one eye than to be utterly worthless it's better for you to have lost one hand than to be a complete waste of space for everybody mm -hmm. So it's again, it's kind of back to that, like, are you a person who's bringing life and fruitfulness to the people around you or are you not? That's the kind of thing that's ha hanging over that. And I don't think it's like a, an internal punishment kind of phrase here. Because if you think about it, like it, it is just kind of literally true. It is bet He's not saying unless you cut off your hand, you will go to hell. I think a lot of people hear that and a lot of sort of fundamentalist christians i've often thought that way like oh if i don't i'm lusting so i better pluck out my eye literally otherwise i'll go to hell that's what jesus said it's like no he doesn't say that he says it's better for you to only be one-eyed than to be yeah, in a yeah. place of burning rubbish which yeah. is true it is better for you to be one-eyed than in a place yeah, yeah. of burning rubbish yeah like it's not saying if you don't do this then you will be in rubbish place no. he's like i would rather you be maimed than be eternally utterly yeah. worthless yeah yeah i remember um when we looked at mark's gospel there was that same idea and it often came about with if i remember this rightly um with false teachers okay yes yes and if that, I, is that where it's like it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck yeah it's the same thing it's better like it's better than that than to lead people into in, i can't remember the phrase but All right yeah. This idea again that he kind of compares. It's not that he's saying if you do do that, then no. that's where you end up. But he's just saying it literally is better for you to be yeah in that place. It, I just think we have to just pay attention to what's actually being said here and not think that it's. I do really think we very quickly go to like, oh, it's some kind of action that you have to do, otherwise you will be sent to hell. Yeah, and I think you just need to go and look at these old texts with fresh eyes again and and think, yeah. is that what it's actually saying? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not. It's not. So he's, so he's about your inner heart is going to affect your relationships and how you treat women and how you treat your own spouse and other people, other people's spouses is going to affect your usefulness in this world. Yeah. Yeah. In the Vale of Hinnom, um, he uses this rather than Gehenna or are they the same thing? In the Yeah, they're the same thing, but um, Gehenna just means the Vale of the Valley of Hinnom. And Bentley Hart is using that on purpose because he wants you to, he wants you to be startled by that word. Okay. Because okay. we are so used to seeing Gehenna 
and thinking that Gehenna means H-E-L-L. Yeah, H-E-L-L. yeah, yeah. And he wants you to think, no, it's not quite that easy as saying that. Like the, you have to do, there's a, quite a number of steps, quite a, a lot of Christian history got to, a, to the place where we just read Gehenna as hell. Yeah. And so he deliberately doesn't translate the word into a, some sort of Anglo-Saxon idiom. He, he leaves it as the Valley of Hinnom. And so when he talks about this, as, you know, he's saying, you know, if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. It is better that you, you know, maim yourself. Is it, is it just, is he using exaggeration to cause us just to reflect on the cost of what it looks like when, when we look at someone adulterously? Or is, it, is, there, is, there, is there a, obviously the action, like you said, is not to go around taking our eyes out and cutting no. our eyes off. But, but what is the kind of, deli- what's the thing that we can act upon? You know, what, what's he saying? Is he saying? Well, I mean, he's, he's been using a lot of exaggeration already, right? So uh, verse 18, I tell you until heaven and earth shall pass away, not a single iota or a single tittle jot will disappear. Like that's an exaggeration claim, right? He says your, your, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. You must be, be perfect. Uh, later on, he talks about if you're standing at the altar and you, you you think of a brother who has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and run and go be reconciled. In reality, that wouldn't happen. Like in reality, there's a huge queue lining up and and you, you've been waiting a year to go to this altar to, to do your sacrifice. And like it's an exaggeration. It's it's like I told you before. It's like if you're if you're opening Christmas on Christmas morning and you open the presents. And just as you're about to unwrap the present that comes from your wife and your children, and you remember that some Stephen has something against you, leave your presence and leave your family and run and go be reconciled with Stephen and then come back and open your presence, right? I think we would understand that as a, a, basically a humorous exaggeration to try mm-hmm. and get you to think how important it might be to be reconciled. Yeah. Not necessarily a literal instruction. Well, because that's the thing, the, the fundamental base of the Sermon on the Mount is it's not about creating another set of rules that we well, all exactly. Yeah, it's, it's full of like the kingdom of heaven is like this or this yeah. is what it's like. And again, he's saying, so if the kingdom of heaven is like, for example, a mustard seed, we don't literally think it's a mustard seed. Yeah. Well, if the kingdom of hell or Gehenna is like having all your fingers in your hands and your eyes cut off. Well, then it's better to have half of them than to be there, right? Yeah. It's the, it's the same kind of exaggerated similes and metaphors to try and drive home the point. Yeah. 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 And, and again, it's so easy, interesting, isn't it, that as human beings, we are driven to be rule, rules followers or rule breakers. Yeah. <laughs> and so we kind of think, oh, good, Jesus has come to not to abolish the law, but fulfill it. And then, oh, good, here's another list of the rules that we can... We can check off our worthiness. I know. I know. We just want another set of of subheadings and uh, clauses, subclauses to check so that we can make sure we're okay. Yeah, to to either make us feel we're approved of or condemned or or whatever. Like it's a kind of. Well, do you know what it is? I think it's so we can judge other people really well. I think it's because we don't want to look at. It's because we would we really want to be able to tell when other people are sinning or when they're okay. And therefore, when we're even better. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually more about judgment, which, by the way, Jesus is about to tell us, do not judge. 
I do think a lot of religion and these laws and more public morality, that public morality isn't really about your heart at all. It's about policing other people and, and yeah. comparing yourself to others. Yeah. And so Jesus is saying, don't do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't care about the public face of your marriage. I care about what's happening in your heart. Yeah. What happens in your heart is what's making you break relationships with people. Yeah. And that's, that seems to me, I, I've just done um, my sermon for Sunday, which is about swearing oaths and telling the truth. And, and it seems to me a lot of these things are fundamentally about Jesus as the agent of recreation, coming right. in to restore that which was broken at the fall. Yeah. And obviously the thing that broke at the fall was relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with our world. And yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So Jesus is coming in and saying, as the agent of recreation, I want to speak to you, not murdering someone. Yes, at kind of at an extreme level, of course, if you if you avoid murder, that's a good thing. And therefore, that relationship is less broken. But it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. Right. About the restoring of human relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you with just managed to refrain from killing a human being. It's like, hmm. There's more to life than just not killing somebody. Not kill, right, exactly. And and not getting to the point where you're like, well, that relationship is really, you know, is in, is in good shape if I haven't killed them. Yeah, exactly. You like defining something by the negative. It's like, well, hang on a minute. Are you really about the kingdom of God, which is about the restoration of all relationships? And so don't even try about try and bring, you know, try and refrain from anger because that breaks relationships. Try and refrain from committing adultery in your heart because that break, like you said, if you've looked at someone lustfully who is not your wife or your husband or whatever, it's unavoidable to be able to kind of compartmentalize that. Yeah. The next time you see them. Well, They're and also you've, you've literally, I mean, we even have the language for it, right? You've objectified somebody. You've yeah. Turned them into an object. Well, dehumanized again, right. which is what we talked about with anger. It dehumanizes somebody to do that. So they're no longer a subject anymore. They're no longer like a, a person. They're just a thing. And, and you're kind of taking yourself out of the web of relationships. If you think of all humans, as slow, we are all connected to each other in different ways. And when you instrumentalize someone, I, to, to be honest, it's the same kind of sin of that, that we find in capitalism and our modern merchant mercantile world, which is yeah. we think of humans as resources. I mean, we even yeah. have the human resources as a job. And so we think of humans as just, extraction points for value yeah and it's that's not any different than the sin here of lust yeah you're just thinking of another person as as not connected to you personally but just as some sort of source for your own pleasure kind of thing or, or yeah. you're just getting something out of it so but that also speaks to what, what we believe of ourselves in terms of our bodies and yeah the use you know our bodies i think a lot of people whether in terms of how we eat or um, how we work, uh, our relationships, our sex lives, or whatever—they are our bodies are machines. They are to yeah that we have a kind of disconnect even with our own physical flesh. We totally think that yeah, and we and, call food like our fuel that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so you're in that position where you're thinking, well, hang on, what kind of relationship do I have with my body? And is actually does it become almost gnostic like that first century? Yeah, right. Heresy, where actually what you did with the physical didn't matter. Yeah. What you is all about the spiritual. Actually, that you can tell some of these threads feed into then objectifying somebody physically. In, yeah. in terms of lust, for example. So you kind of you you wouldn't ever 
a lot of people wouldn't dream of thinking they are less than human. But lust essentially takes the humanity out of, you know, takes their own agency, their own free freedom of choice. They don't want to be viewed in that way and treats them, their body as a physical machine for your satisfaction. And again, that's the consumer bit as well. So it's kind of we're consuming. Right. Yeah, it's part of that consumer mentality. Now, I mean, now the real human being shows up later on. Do you want to move on to divorce? Yeah, let's do that. So the, the adultery stuff is all about the inner life of a person and how that's going to affect your usefulness in your relationships. But then Jesus t- goes on to talk about, and so it's interesting here, by the way, that notice that all the uh, veil of Hinnom and Gehenna language is all about you as a person. Like, it, it's not about the wife. It's not about the, the relationship. It's about you personally being of use or not. Okay. Yeah. So then hell language disappears, Gehenna language stops, and we move on to another teaching, which Matthew has strung together with this. It, it's, not, it's not obvious that this teaching was always directly connected to the adultery language, by the way. So, because in Mark, like in different, different gospels have this, these kind of teachings in different places. So, so then Matthew, goes, or Matthew has Jesus say, uh, moreover, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife he must provide her with a writ of separation, or do you have a document of divorce? What does yours say? Uh, I got, I still got uh, David Bentley Hart, so I've only only got that one in front of me at the moment. So whereas I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of some kind of activity, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever weds a divorced woman commits adultery. The context here is, I think I mentioned this before, of it wasn't like. Jesus was coming into a group of people who were like hyper conservative scriptural literalists, right? Yeah. It was almost the other way around. It was like, there were so many rules and regulations that had kind of built up around the original teachings about divorce, that it was really easy for you to make an exception to yourself, to the rule. Right. So if anything, the, the, the rules around divorce were like really quote unquote liberal it was really easy to get a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because it was just, yeah, it was super easy. Um, they'd come up with all sorts of exceptions and technicalities and legal loopholes. So that the big debates were around like, how easy should it be to divorce your wife? That was the big debate that was going on. It's almost the same kind of what can I get away with question. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the most extreme, the one side was saying, even if she burns the cooking pot, this was like one of the things they said, even if she burns the cooking pot when making your supper, that's grounds for divorce. You can divorce. And then uh, the other side was saying, no, no, you have to, it, you know, it, it can only be if adultery has entered into the relationship. So Jesus comes along and he, he picks a side. I mean, he sides with the people who are making it harder to get a divorce, for example. But I mean, we also have to constantly, constantly, constantly remember that this was a thing that men did to women, right? This was this was a way that men were treating their property. So when Jesus makes divorce harder, it's not in a world in which men and women are equal and you know agents working together. It's he's not an this is not an anti-woman teaching by making it harder to get a divorce. He's not, he's not like imposing restrictions on a woman's freedom to choose, right? What he's doing is he's protecting women who are being 
utterly abandoned by their husbands because they burnt the cooking pot. And, and when you're divorced, there's nothing you could do about it. You were soiled goods and you were, you know, you might not even, you'd had to have left your family to go to join your husband's family. And then if you were divorced, if he rejects you, your own family might not take you back. You're just left. You you have nothing to know where to go, right? And I'm oh. guessing I'm 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 presupposing, but I'm, I'm guessing that the the climate for self sufficiency for women was different than for men um, in in their ability to be able to earn or, or make. A oh yeah, I mean you're you're reduced to like well, think of like Naomi and Ruth. I mean, you're reduced to just picking grain, the scraps of grain, you know, in a field and stuff, and you're you're treated like a potential prostitute or you know you're just not it's not a there's no dignity yeah there's no agency you're not like this free woman going i'm free at last i'm so glad i can now pursue my own life with my own freedoms yeah i can make my own choices it's not it's not emancipation to be divorced by a husband yeah goes into the marketplace and he just says i divorce you i divorce you i divorce you three times and then he gets a rabbi to sign the the, the script the writ of divorce and there you go you're done you got no recourse you can't fight back right yeah so for jesus to come along and say these kinds of things that he's saying is another way of him saying women are important yeah they are they you can't discard women yeah he, he's bringing up this idea of adultery so it becomes way more clear in the gospel of mark by the way this same teaching yeah he talks about if a man divorces a woman and marries again he's committing adultery against the woman yeah yeah which is not like i we talked about this before i think but you know that's like that wasn't really something people thought of they didn't think that you could sin against your own wife mm-hmm. because your wife was just a piece of property so you can commit adultery against your wife that's crazy yeah normally you would just commit adultery against the other man's the other woman's husband yeah so and then and then in Mark he says and then if a woman divorces the man and so all of a sudden he's introduced a whole new idea that women could maybe yeah have some freedom here too right so he's elevating women to the level of being partners in a marriage yeah and yeah. It, there's something like that happening here it's not quite as clear but there's something like that happening here as well um, everyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery and whoever weds a divorced woman commits adultery so he's he's basically saying women are part of the adultery game now they are they are they are i've elevated them to the level of potential sinners <laughs> yeah what do matters the person to blame for that is the one that marries them well he's just sort of saying like adultery is is a two-way street now yeah yeah which we'd, we'd all get on board with well now we would yeah yeah and it's partly because of these kind of teachings that we do right this yeah. is the beginning of the this is the beginning of the story of of seeing marriage as equal partnership. It's really interesting that um, you know for centuries we've you know it's been a fairly fairly common understanding that adultery is happens, but it's it's not right. There right. is a wronged party in that. But interestingly, I read an article in the, or the headline. I didn't read the article because I just couldn't didn't have the emotional energy for it. But um, uh, it was the headline was "Is adultery always wrong?" And it was in the all oh, right. It was in the Times, and um, I just thought it's interesting that you know we're we're reshaping our moral framework. Oh yeah, all the, all the time, and now it's things that you would just think, well, of course it's wrong. You know, it happens, blah blah blah. But now to even question its moral positioning, as it were. Um, yeah, you'll you all I'll probably will always have that right, and so that's where Jesus is, is would come along and say, well, 
how you are affect how you are thinking about another human is affecting your relationships with them. Yeah, this is a serious thing you're doing. I mean, this 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 phrase, this clause, except for which Bentley Hart says horishness. So oh, yeah, I've got, I've got um, marital unfaithfulness. The the word is pornea, which is obviously where we get the word pornography from. Yeah, and it it has to do. It's a it's a unique clause, by the way. Like this is one of those little puzzles. Like if you did an undergraduate degree in in New Testament studies, yeah, I had to write an essay on this. Like it's like a thing that they set undergraduates because it's a sort of a famous biblical puzzle, really. Yeah, because Mark has the same teaching, but he he doesn't have except he doesn't have that clause. He doesn't. Jesus just says. Um, if you divorce your wife, you commit adultery. Yeah. He doesn't have the clause. If you commit your wife, if you divorce your wife, except for. Yeah. This word, pornea. So we're not quite sure exactly. I mean, we know what it means. It means uh, illicit sex or yeah. sex outside of, um, I guess we would say outside of right marriage. Yeah. So there's some debate about whether it just, it means incest. Like, it, you know, like, so it's kind of a, the idea is that it was never, it was never a valid marriage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it might be a, a thing that has rendered the marriage invalid before it even started. Yeah. So is it on discovering it later? It's like, it kind of. That, it might be that. It might be that. Or it might be, it might be like actually having, having it sex outside of the marriage bounds. Right. Which of course is what our law is based on, isn't it? Or yeah. Historically it's been. Yeah. Uh, that that is a legitimate cause for divorce you know that's the the one way that certainly up until very very recently the, the the quickest and easiest if you could prove that there'd been adultery um it would be uncontested that divorce would be uncontested yeah right right and that you know that would be the, the evidence of the laws being shaped by this yeah by this by these verses yeah 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 so it's, it's a word as far as i know it doesn't come up very often in the rest of the new testament no, i don't maybe not at all yeah okay I'm not sure. I might be wrong about that, but it's it's a rare word. You know, it's not yeah. it's not like a word that everybody knows exactly what it means. So, yeah. which is why you can write endless <laughs> books and essays about it. <laughs> yeah, there doesn't seem to be that much extra, extra textual about it. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, there's there's lots of there's lots of conjecture. Did Matthew just put it in on purpose in order to sort of soften the blow? Did did Jesus say it and Matthew recorded it faithfully, and yeah. Jesus doesn't yeah. say it somewhere else? Did Mark take it out? Did Jesus say it, but then Mark took it out? Like, there's yeah. lots of debates, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reality is we have two different versions, one with a clause and one without. Yeah. But they don't necessarily, it's not like they lead to opposite places. It's They're both just saying the marriage is between two equal moral partners and what they do matters. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I think this is the point, is that Jesus definitely had a, had a sexual ethic and it emerges later on in Matthew as well. There's in Matthew 25, I think, or um, I might've got that reference wrong, but later on in the, in the twenties anyway, Matt, Matt, um, he has a sexual ethic and refers to sexual immorality. He refers to, but he obviously upholds the sense in which that there, that he goes back to the kind of creation roots of what marriage is. Yeah. Called. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Pus- yeah. A, man, a man shall leave his family and join with his, with his wife. And, yeah. And that's yeah, that, it's one of those rare times he affirms the Genesis stories, and yeah, yeah, and that's that's critical in understanding what marriage is. Even you know, it's yeah. it, it's marriage is more than contractual, which often we want to kind of boil it down to. It's about le- le- legal legalities and and contractual right, 
exchanges, right. but actually marriage here is is, is covenantal. Uh, it's rooted in creation. It's 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 a lifelong commitment as long as um, as, as that's able. But of course, there's grace for that. And so he doesn't forbid divorce, does he at all? You know, it's not like it's completely off the table. But no, he, and he he doesn't, right? It assumes that there is going to be some remarriage, actually. And yeah. he's like, well, when you get remarried, just so you know, you are now in the well in the realm of the world that we call adultery. Yeah. So he doesn't forbid it, but he says it's morally serious. So then, you, so then we have to worry. We have to think about the um, the weight of judgment that gets put on divorced people who get remarried in Christian churches. Yeah. And I think I've talked about this before with Mark as well, yeah. like to do that then. So it is possible to say, yes, if you've been remarried, you have committed adultery. It is possible to say that. And at the same time say, and how did Jesus treat people who committed adultery? What does he do about that? Not yeah. what does your Christian church say about it? What does the weight of public morality say about it? What does Jesus say to people who committed yeah. adultery? Yeah. Well, go have a look at John 7. You know, go have a look at when he finds a woman caught in adultery. What does he yeah. say to her? What yeah. does he do? How does he treat her? Right? Yeah. Um, so so I think we can say, yeah, adultery happened there. And it's, do you know what? It's not, it's not the worst thing you've ever done in your life. It's not the end of the world. And Jesus has not abandoned you. Yeah. Exactly. And also saying God hates divorce. Or that it divorces something that is sort of striking a lot deeper than just the surface public yeah. options. That's not the same as saying God hates divorced people, right? right? It's just that divorce is breaking, it's shattering relationships. Yeah. And he hates that. Well, and 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 anybody who's got divorced will say at some point, this was never the intention. Right. Yeah, right. You know, and we've and, all been touched yeah, there's nobody alive in 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 this world who hasn't been touched by divorce in some way. Right, and even those who have willingly gone through a divorce process or, or unwillingly, even no no one would say, "Well, yeah, that was great. That was yeah. what I wanted. That yeah. was what I wanted all along." And you're like, "Well, yeah, no, no one has set out in marriage for that reason." It's, and I think sometimes we can look at these passages in isolation we're going to come to a close in a moment but, you know this is a small passage on adultery and a divorce but we forget the kind of the the bible story of grace and redemption and and forgiveness and a recognition that we screw up and we make mistakes all the time and there is forgiveness and there is grace just as there was for the woman caught in adultery yeah and also the creation i mean the fact that in mark jesus links he's going to link uh marriage back to creation as well and he's actually like creating he's doing an act of creation right now he's creating human beings he's creating women he's saying they're not just property you're actually yeah proper fully fledged human beings yeah. right now so he's created yeah. a person where before there wasn't one right yeah so there's a lot of like creation going on right now like you rightly pointed out this is the kind of restoration of creation sort of yeah. stuff he's drilling down into like the heart of of the, the web of life and connection with each other he is talking about the will of god for creation he's talking about restored relationships which are much bigger and more important than we might imagine yeah. so yeah it is an act of recreation even these even these divorce and adultery passages which you might be tempted to think they're just legalistic 
they're actually they're actually the opposite. He's yeah. he's saying your legalism isn't even close to what's going on here. You're not you're touching on what's important right now at all. Yeah, yeah, amazing. We're going to close there for this evening, Stephen. Thank you so much for your time again uh, with us. Um, anything more you want to add? Anything we might have missed before we go, or should I close with a prayer? Well, no, I just, I am just aware that any, that, like I said, there's always people, there is nobody not touched by divorce. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I'm not, I don't live in a family untouched by divorce. You don't live in a family untouched by divorce. So, uh, uh, I just want to know if anybody's hearing this, (laughs) that they might be feeling the weight of these words, adultery and divorce and hate and all this. and, And I just feel like you really need to you need to see yourself the way Jesus sees you and not the way your Christian culture has trained you to see you because those are not the same things and uh, and and the, the kind of legal the weight of legal morality is 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 the weight that Jesus was trying to ber- release you from not add more to so yeah that's a great way to finish thank you for listening thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.